Heavenly Father, God, thank you, Lord, so much for this community, for this opportunity to come together to study your word and to investigate and live um, in your text through the eyes of the ancient Israelites. As you set forward how to live, how to spend time, how to come together, how to remember, God, we pray that as we dive into Leviticus 23 today, um, that we would move closer to you and to the beauty um, of your holy calendar. And we ask all this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so we are in the book of Leviticus. And all of you on your little aisles, I think in some of the tables here, we've put together a cheat sheet for you. Because I think some of us, as we sit and we pour through this big book of Leviticus 23, and we hear about all these holidays and dates that we are, most of us in this room, very unfamiliar with. Uh, We don't keep these Many, most Christians don't keep these holidays anymore. Um, I thought I would just help us by sort of giving you a cheat sheet. So I don't expect you to look at this necessarily now. Um, my sermon, I pray, will be a little more riveting than your um, table of, little table of uh, holidays in front of you. But I do think you might find this helpful to kind of keep it all straight in your head as we move forward um, and as you kind of reflect back on the sermon this week. Uh, Just a quick note, from the top on your chart page here, it says Passover and then Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, Weeks, Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and Tabernacles. That is how the book of Leviticus lays it out in 23. That's the order of the holidays. So if you are trying to keep track as we go through a little bit quickly through the entire chapter tonight, that is the order. Um, And it is the order of the Jewish calendar. Um, But there's something that's going to be confusing about that in the middle, and I'll explain it when we get there. Um, So hopefully that's um, a little bit of some explanation. And then on the back, there's kind of like, how does the Jewish calendar work? Well, it's a lunar moon calendar, but then there's sort of like some solar stuff that happens every once in a while. And how does the dating system work? And what year is it? And if I wanted to study more, where should I go? All of that information is there for you. Cool? Awesome? Yay! So the title of tonight's message is Save the Date. And uh, we wanted to just kind of pour through. So let's look at Leviticus chapter 23, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, these are my appointed festivals, the appointed festivals of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. There are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work wherever you live. It's a Sabbath to the Lord. So I just want to stop right there and say we're not going to be addressing the Sabbath tonight, but um, you should address it at some point. Maybe Spark will have just a whole series on just Sabbath and what it means to rest, particularly in our busy community. The festivals we're going to be focusing on are going to be particularly uh, Pentecost or Shavuot and the Feast of Tabernacles, but we're going to go through all of these. I just think it's interesting that God starts the explanation of the calendar by saying, don't forget Your festival, your religious calendar is marked by every single week remembering creation, remembering that you are created, remembering that you have a creator who rested, that we, that Sabbath is specifically created so that you may catch your breath. And that's in the Hebrew underneath in the passages that discuss Sabbath, that we're going to catch a breath, that it's, it's the full cessation of rest. 
And the concept of Sabbath is important because it actually will carry the concept of rest into the holidays that we're going to start to read about in the coming chapter. So just a reminder, keep calm, enjoy the Sabbath. And my primary uh, focus on this, I think sometimes as Christians, we think, oh, I don't have to keep Sabbath because Jesus fulfilled all the law, and so I am, you know, set free from that. And I just want to let you know that if your boss or your teacher or anyone in authority in your life said to you, you know what, I just love you. You're like my favorite employee slash student, and I am going to once a week just give you a full day off. Paid. You don't have to do a thing. You're just, the only job is that you just get to rest, okay? That's your job. You just get to rest. You Paid. You're not going to miss any homework. You're not going to skip out on anything. You're not going to fall behind in your work. You, my friend, you get one day off a week that none of the rest of the people in the world are going to get. Those Canaanites aren't getting it. You're just getting one day off a week, and I want to give you that gift. We as Christians might want to rethink our rejection of the Sabbath, Um, and might want to sort of embrace the gift that God has given us. He knows who we are, and he knows how our natural rhythms work, and rest is important. It's part of who we are and how we are created to be and to live. All right, let's continue in our chapter. These are the Lord's appointed festivals, the sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at the appointed times. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. And on the 15th day of that month, the Lord's festival of unleavened bread begins. For seven days, you must eat bread made without yeast. And on the first day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. For seven days, present a food offering to the Lord. And on the seventh day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I'm going to give you, and you reap its harvest, bring the priest a sheaf of the grain you harvest. He is to wave the sheaf before the Lord so it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. On the day you wave the sheaf, you must sacrifice a burnt offering to the Lord, a lamb a year old without defect, together with its grain offering of two tenths of an ephah of the finest flour, mixed with olive oil, food offering, presented to the Lord a pleasing aroma. And its drink offering of a quarter of a hint of wine. You must not eat any bread or roasted new grain until the very day you bring this offering to your God. And this is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. You all do that, I know. Um, And from the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, count off seven full weeks. Count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. And from wherever you live, bring two loaves made of two-tenths of an ephah of the finest flour baked with yeast as a wave offering of first fruits to the Lord. Let me just stop right there and say the reason why they can be loaves and they don't have to be unleavened bread. See, leavening is a picture of sin, and you never brought an offering up to the altar that had any leaven in it, any yeast. But these actually don't go up to the altar. They just come before the Lord. So these were loaves, more like nice big hollow loaves. All right, so present with this bread seven male lambs. Just bring those. You have those, I know. Each a year old and without defect, one young bull, two rams. They will be a burnt offering to the Lord together with their grain offerings and the drink offerings, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. And then sacrifice one male goat for a sin offering and two lambs, each a year old for a fellowship offering. The priest is to wave the two lambs before the Lord as wave offering together with the bread of the first fruits. I know what you're thinking. How do you wave a lamb? Like this. I'm just joking. Um, It's actually the rabbis talk about it, and they say that you're supposed to put your two hands up underneath the offering, and then you're supposed to walk it to and fro, is the quote, and to elevate it and bring it down. So that is how you wave 
the offering. All right. I mean, where the text is vague, the rabbis will fill that in for you. So to and fro with your two hands there, elevate, bring it down. They are a sacred offering to the Lord for the priest. And on that same day, you're to proclaim a sacred assembly. Do no regular work. There's your Sabbath rest again. And this is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. Anyone feel like we're starting to be a little bit repetitive with some? Anyone? No? Okay. That's partly because this was oral. And it's easier to remember how it was first handed down if there's some repetition. By the way, when you celebrate that festival, when you reap the harvest of your land, don't reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, on the first day of the seventh month, you are to have a day of Sabbath rest, a sacred assembly commemorated with trumpet blasts. Do no regular work, but present a food offering to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, on the day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. Now we just did the day of atonement on Easter when we did Leviticus 19, so 18, so 17, 16. Uh, We've been there recently. And that, so I'm going to just push through this portion of the text. Here we go. You have to deny yourself. So there's fasting. Anyone who doesn't is going to be cut off. It's a day of Sabbath rest for this day of atonement, Yom Kippur. And then the Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, on the 15th day of the seventh month of the Lord's festival of tabernacles, and it lasts for seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly. Do no regular work. For seven days, present food offerings to the Lord. And on the eighth day, hold a sacred assembly. Present a food offering to the Lord. It's a closing special assembly. Do no regular work. These are the Lord's appointed festivals, which you're to proclaim as sacred assemblies. And it repeats again. So beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, after you've gathered the crops of your land, celebrate the festival of the Lord for seven days. And the first day is a Sabbath rest. And the eighth day is also a Sabbath rest. And on the first day... You are to take branches from luxuriant trees, from palms, willows, and other leafy trees, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. It's to be lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters so your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so Moses announced the Israelites the appointed festivals of the Lord. Whew, we made it through all of Leviticus 23. We're focusing specifically in on that seven-feast cycle. Now, as we look at the seven biblical festivals or feasts that God puts forth, they divide into two times of year, the spring festivals and the fall festivals. And as followers of Jesus, we see some beautiful, wonderful symbolism in this festival and holiday schedule. And we're going to look at that a little more closely as we push through. But primarily what I want you to know is that this is the agricultural cycle of the land of Israel. So other festivals are going to be held during these times in spring and fall. There's some just deep practicalities of what happens in the land. It basically has two seasons, wet and dry, although... As the Bible is going to tell us and point out, there are some very specific fruits and specific crops that can grow and draw, grow and be harvested at particular times of the year. In fact, at Gezer, a location right near the coast of um, the Mediterranean Sea in Israel, primary place where Solomon built a gate, it was given to King Solomon as a dowry when he married Pharaoh's daughter. They found a calendar there that looks like a schoolboy's exercise, and that small calendar at Gezer says this. 
two months gathering, that'd be September, October, we should have gathering in, two months planting, two months late sowing, one month cutting flax, one month reaping barley, one month reaping measuring grain, two months pruning, one month summer fruit. People had to know how the land worked, why it worked that way, and how they could make that life exist for them. Now, for us today, we don't pay a lot of attention to those things. We're not farmers. We're not agrarian in our lifestyle. And we can even take rain for granted. Yes, even those of us in the state of California, where we've experienced a big drought and we're very thankful for our most recent wonderful rainy season, we often know that if it doesn't rain, you can still, any of you fear that you will go to the tap in your bathroom and it's not going to turn on? We all know we can get water. And with modernity coming, the state of Israel even has just been doing great strides and has met with Governor Brown to say, don't you worry, California. We can give you desalinization plants. You can totally, you never have to worry about water again. No matter what the world does, you don't have to worry about water. But that's not true in much of the world, and it certainly wasn't true for ancient Israel. Today, right now, in Ethiopia, there's a huge famine. And the famine is present because of drought. And when you have that, life looks like this. This is a current picture from Ethiopia. Where previously there had been a field, there is none. Where previously there had been crops and food, there is no food. And where there had been animals, the animals are now useless to the people there. If they've not died, they're still useless. They're not able to produce milk. They're not able to, pr- to produce wool or goat's hair, which means people don't have clothing. They don't have shelter. And life is tough. So the ancient Israelites, as they looked forward into their religious festivals and holidays, they understood that much of what God was setting forth in front of them had to do with the way that life would work. And as we've been talking about throughout all of our Torah series so far, we try to find a way to explain the world around us, and the ancients did as well. So if it didn't rain in the new land that Israel was moving into, then maybe the gods there aren't happy. And maybe we need to find a way to make them happy. And sure enough, the Canaanites had a god called Baal, who was the storm god. And he had a lightning bolt in his hand, and he had big horns like a bull, and he would ride in on the clouds. And people would pray to Baal to get the rain to come. And the Asherah poles that were there in the land would sort of rise up in response to Baal throwing his lightning bolt down and inseminating the earth and having a response back. These are the ancient ways of understanding the world. And God knows that about his people. So he's going to say, essentially, but I am the one and the only one that will control and provide these things for you, but we will make it a partnership. Deuteronomy 11 explains it this way. If only you'll heed his every commandment that I'm commanding you today, loving the Lord your God and serving him with all your heart and with all your soul, then he will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the late rain. And you will gather in your grain and your wine and your oil, and you'll give grass in your fields for livestock, and you will eat your fill. But it's a partnership, isn't it? Heed God's commands. Love him with everything, and God himself will provide the rain. Which means that if ancient Israel found itself in a place where there wasn't rain, they should immediately start to ask the question of themselves, where is it that we have fallen, not which God should we start to worship instead in order to try to get rain to come. 
But, you know, you've read the story, right? They had good days and bad days like all of us. So let's jump in then to the spring festivals for a few moments. The first one is Passover. And then the next day commemorates the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a seven-day festival. And then the next day, so days, I think it's 14, 15, 16 in your book, but um, the next day is the Feast of First Fruits. So you would celebrate the Passover, which commemorates what event in the historical calendar of the Israelites? Exodus. And the Exodus is God setting his people free from slavery, free from Egypt. So they are to remember every year the Passover. They are to remember that God has set them free, that they are people intended to be free, to live free. And then the next day, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they are praying, God, remember, please give us life from the ground. And then bring your first fruits. So interestingly enough, if you look at the New Testament account of Jesus' last week, He is crucified on Passover. He is buried on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And he is raised on the Feast of First Fruits. Because God just likes to set up a calendar 3,000 years in advance to also point to another wonderful event. And Paul leans into this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Jesus is the first fruits of our resurrection. And we can talk more about that set of beautiful holidays if you come on April 23rd to our Passover Seder. So, 50 days from that event. Then we jump into the Feast of Shavuot. Any of you know what Christians typically call the Feast of Shavuot? And you can look at your cheat sheet if you want to look really smart. Pentecost. How do we get that name? Penta 50, 50 days. But the Bible calls it the Feast of Weeks. It's seven weeks plus a day following from the end of the previous one. And this is that set of spring festivals. Now, in the Bible, God commands of these seven feasts or festivals or holidays that three of them you have to be in Jerusalem for. The rest you can celebrate at home. Sabbath you can celebrate at your own home. And the rest of the feasts. The three pilgrimage feasts are not Passover, ironically, but the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which encompasses Passover, and then the Feast of Shavuot. So if you live in the Galilee, you have schlepped down for Passover, you've hung out there for a full week, and then you've schlepped back up to the Galilee, and now you're going to come back 50 days later because you have to be in Jerusalem for the Feast of Shavuot. The Apostle Paul takes this so seriously that we actually have accounts of him in the book of Acts and in his epistles of him saying, I know I'm all the way in Turkey, but I need to get back for the Feast of Shavuot. I need to be there for that. So what does the Feast of Shavuot celebrate? Well, the ancient Israelites looked and they were said, you know what? Where were we, if Passover is here when we were leaving Egypt, where were we about 50 days later? Ah, we had just arrived at Mount Sinai. And that was when God gave us the Torah. So even though it's not mentioned in our Levitical text, the rabbis, long before the time of Jesus, associated the Feast of Shavuot or Pentecost with the giving of the Torah. And so the Israelites said, ah, the Feast of Shavuot, we're going to stay up. We're going to study Torah. We're going to pay attention to this beautiful feast. And because of the commandment to also make sure to not cut the corners of your field, they also read the book of Ruth because she gleaned from the corners of the field behind Boaz. So even today in Jewish custom, people will stay up all night on Shavuot studying Torah. And you can find 
here even in Palo Alto, Torah studies to go join into that will stay up all night in order to keep and remember this particular festival. Now, if you're a Christian, what do you think of when you think of the Feast of Shavuot or Pentecost? Flames, right? Yes. The giving of the Holy Spirit, we talk about. When I was growing up in a liturgical church, I thought we Christians invented this festival. I had no idea that it reached back into time prior to the time of those first followers of Jesus. I thought Pentecost was really, because nobody ever explained it to me, only about the giving of the Holy Spirit, flames. In fact, because I grew up in a liturgical Lutheran church, we actually put flames up. Like we had banners for different portions that, you know, sweet church guild members, you know, old ladies had made that are still in effect at my church today. Um, And you could see red banners would come out. Anyone? Yes? Uh, Flames. uh, Great. Thank you. Preaching to the choir for some people. Great. Okay. So Pentecost also became, for Christians, a memory of the events of Acts chapter 2. Who can tell me what happened at Acts chapter 2? The flames, right? The Holy Spirit comes out. What do the people do? They start to speak in tongues, which is different languages. It's not babbling because the text tells us very clearly that people understood them. And they were like, oh, I understand them, but how do they speak my language? Because I'm from this place over here. Because all of those Jews were all in Jerusalem for the pilgrimage feast because they had to be there for that time. So that's one of the three required pilgrimage feasts. So as they're sitting there, that early church sitting there, those early followers of Jesus, not even a church, the assembly, it says that they are daily in the temple courts praying in the book of Luke. It says that the disciples are constantly still at the temple, and it's nine o'clock in the morning, because Peter says, we're not drunk, it's nine o'clock in the morning. So where are all the followers of Jesus? They're at the temple. They're at the house of God. Now, we have often placed them where? In the upper room, right? And then we're always like, how did 3,000 people get in the upper room? That is amazing. And pastors go, it was a miracle, like the walls move, and all these other things happen. But you have to remember, it says that they were in the house, and the word that the Jews used and still use today for God's house, for the temple, is the house. So they're in the house, because that's where they're supposed to be. It's nine o'clock in the morning. It's the time for the morning sacrifice, and it's one of the three pilgrimage feasts. And as they're there, all of a sudden, just like it happened when they were on Mount Sinai, all of a sudden, fire is starting to happen. And I don't know if you remember from the events of Mount Sinai, but what else happened on that mountain? Thunder and clouds. And the word for thunder in Hebrew, kolot. And the word for voices, kolot. Because it's a voice from the skies. And so all of a sudden, those followers of Jesus who were like, wow, he was crucified on Passover because Paul says he is our Passover. John says he is our Passover lamb. He was buried on the feast of unleavened bread when everyone's praying for life from the ground. And Jesus himself said, I am the bread of the world. And he's raised on the feast of first fruits because he's the first fruits of our resurrection. He hasn't missed a holiday yet. Disciples, I think we better stay in Jerusalem. And sure enough, as they're there, fire again. Voices again come out. And this movement of God starts afresh. It's happening again. God is speaking again. He is commissioning his community of followers again. And all of these people there are all Jewish followers of Jesus. 
It's not till later the Gentiles come in, and it's much to the surprise of Peter and the others. And so God is moving. These ancient holidays were being kept in Jesus' day. As we read Leviticus 23, as we poured through all of that text, as some of you started to fall asleep the 50th time I said appointed festivals, you have to understand that if you don't know Leviticus 23, then you and I, we don't know the power of what's happening in Acts 2. We've missed it. We can go, oh, that's really cool. Tongues. Let's make up what that might be. Oh, that sounds really interesting. They were all in that upper room. Fantastic. They all squished in. What does Peter do after he gives his speech to the people that are there asking what's happening in the big house of God, in the temple? What does he do? Do you guys remember? He baptizes. A whole bunch of people say, ah, I believe. And they get baptized in the name of Jesus which is a really fascinating thing because, you see, you never would ever immerse in the name of somebody dead. So everyone believes that he is alive. He's appeared. And they get baptized in the name of Jesus. Do you guys remember how many, how many did Peter, were added to the church that day? 3,000. Go back with me to Sinai. When Moses is up on Sinai and he's up there, he says, God says, I hear the sound of something bad happening down in the camp. What's happening? Golden calf, right? Not great. Not our best moment. As Moses responds to that event, the Levites go throughout the camp and they kill. How many die? 3,000. God is redeeming and moving and giving us all another chance. Remember that time I gave you the Torah and remember that time my power came down and remember how you all stood there and yet there was unfaithfulness and yet we lost 3,000. Guess what? I'm redeeming and I'm moving and I'm now adding 3,000 back in. Languages from all over the world, this message will go out to all. That God is on the move. That the historical holidays that he put into place a long time ago were present and deeply meaningful for the people of that day. And they were rehearsals for what was also to come. And at the end of that whole story in Acts 2, it says, And the people in the church gave to the poor all that they had so that none was in need. Just like God commands for the gleaning of the fields. Don't cut the corners of your fields, new followers following Messiah Jesus. Remember to give to the poor. And this empowered movement of God starts to push through all of history once again. And at this point, you're thinking, this can't be a coincidence. And I would agree with you entirely. I don't think it's a coincidence at all. Let's now move into our fall festivals. We're going to have a really warm, hot summer period where all of the delicious rays of the sun will be pouring into the fantastic grapes and pomegranates. And it's going to be so tasty in the fall. And God will start to gather his people. And the festival that starts this next process is called the Feast of Trumpets. 
Now, it has come to today be known as Rosh Hashanah, or the head of the new year. And so, even though, according to our biblical calendar, the new year starts with Passover, it now, today, the new year starts with the festival of trumpets in the Jewish calendar today. But back in these days, it didn't yet. Okay? So let's just hang for one second with the Feast of Trumpets. What were trumpets used for? Why would you, this is all God really says. He's like, get together and start blowing trumpets. All right? So what's a trumpet used for? A warning. Great. Absolutely. Can be used to warn people. Absolutely. What else? What's that? Noise. Sure. Getting, gaining attention, right? Yeah, particularly if like a two-year-old has it. Uh, what else? An announcement. Something needs to be said. Absolutely. I mean, that's like kind of what we think of when we go into a, think of our, like a Roman play, right? The person comes across and goes, dun, 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 and then they give an announcement. Typically from who? A king. The trumpets almost always often heralded kings coming in, right? If a king's going to start to move on in, you blow a trumpet, you let people know, you alert them, you warn them, you celebrate with trumpets. The psalmist would say, grab your trumpet and blow. Like you're going to celebrate and praise God with this instrument. So God says, come together and blow the trumpet. And many times as now you're looking through your Bible, particularly if you think about the discussions that we'll have in the New Testament about what we refer to as like end of times, they're often heralded with the start of a trumpet blow. Pay attention. The angel is coming, blowing a trumpet. The king is on his way. God is on the move. So the Feast of Trumpets is set into place. And there's even a location that they found this beautiful stone in Jerusalem where the person, the trumpeter, would stand on the south western corner of the temple and as the romans destroyed the temple in 70 a.d this stone fell down and has been recovered and it says the place for the blowing so we know and there's a little notch you can stand in it still today into the the replica that's there come with us we know that the people in jesus's day kept this festival remembered this festival and kept it in their holiday season But particularly, the Feast of Trumpets is going to bring people together to say, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, is coming. The days of awe are beginning. And we need to start to prepare ourselves because we have sinned, our community has sinned, and we are going to be judged. But we can also be forgiven. And that leads us into the Day of Atonement, which we discussed on Easter Sunday. And then after that, we're going to celebrate. And here comes the Feast of Sukkot, or Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. This is my favorite feast by far, because it says that the whole point of this feast is to come before God and party. You are to come before, you are commanded to rejoice. None of the other festivals or feasts are you commanded to rejoice, but here you are commanded to come before God and rejoice before him. To be praising him, to be thrilled. And I think every kid on earth and the kids that are still inside all of us love this because my daughter's favorite activity is to build a fort. Favorite by far. And God actually commands whole families, parents, you're forced to, it's a commandment by God, to live inside of a fort for seven days, eight days. So 
all throughout Jerusalem, people would come, and this is a pilgrimage festival. You have to do this. She would come from all over the land, come into Jerusalem, build a temporary dwelling place, and come before God and rejoice. And this is what it looks like today, packed in completely before the Western Wall, the Kotel at the Temple Mount. And I've lived in Jerusalem during this time period, and you'll see sukkahs, Sukkot, these little temporary dwellings pop up off balconies in apartment buildings, like a sheer wall of apartment building. But when people build in Jerusalem, they build with the knowledge and intention that someone's going to have to, for eight days, eat all of their meals and temporary dwell in a sukkah. And all of the restaurants, if you want to stay open in Jerusalem, you better build a sukkah because everyone has to eat in a sukkah for eight days. It's awesome. It's a party and it's so great. When Solomon dedicated the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, it was the festival of tabernacles. And he prays very specifically. As all of the people of God are coming before him and they're grabbing those palm branches and they're grabbing the myrtle branches and they're waving before God and they're shouting and they're praising God, they're rejoicing. That's all we're told to do. Grab these branches and rejoice. Okay, God. And they're shouting and shouting, grabbing these branches. Solomon begins his prayer. God when we are disobedient and you pull your reign from this land, when we come back to you, when we repent, would you turn your face back to us and send rain? And a dark cloud fills the temple as Solomon dedicates it. That beautiful dark cloud picturing rain, always a symbol of rain. And God's presence moves on in. And as a result of Solomon's dedication of the temple during the feast of Sukkot with his prayer for rain, the two festivals got connected. It's the two prayers, the prayer for rain and the festival. Because it's very clear that, first of all, if you grab a palm branch and you shake it, it sounds like rain on a roof. And if you have a whole bunch of people standing around shaking that, it's going to sound like rain. And guess what? It's around September, October, depends upon the year. And what do we need God to start doing? We need him to start sending rain. Because if he doesn't send rain, this feast of ingathering has been great, but then we will be that picture of the desert with the cow next year. It's October, God send rain. And they started this prayer. Send rain, Lord, send rain. Save us, God, save us. And the rabbi said that what they always would pray for is that by the time the pilgrims left the temple and they would be given about a week to get home, that the first rains should, if God was blessing the land, land by the time everyone got home. So people would be praying for those early rains to start to fall onto the land. And as soon as the land got a little bit soft, then the farmer could go out and start to dig and start to plant their seed again to be prepared for the harvest again coming the next year. Which, by the way, tells us when it says that there were shepherds out in their fields at night keeping watch over their flocks for the birth of Jesus, we know what time of year that was. It wasn't the time of year when sheep would then be eating the harvest. You're not going to let sheep and goats just be hanging out eating all your wheat and your barley. It had to be before it was planted. So it's the fall. Right when you want the uh, natural product of sheep and goats to be landing in your field. Right before the rains. And the Gospel of John says, The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. God came and dwelled among us. Maybe 
The Bible doesn't say, but maybe that's probably, what a lot of historians would say, would be a, a good time to guess when Jesus was born. Not, maybe not December 25th, that's all I'm saying. All right. So by the time we get to Jesus' day, an elaborate water-drawing festival had sort of moved, ceremony had moved into the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Sukkot. And every day on this seventh, eighth-day feast, the priest would go and he would walk all the way down to the Pool of Siloam, and he would take this golden pitcher and grab water, and he would walk all the way up with all the pilgrims, and he would pour the water out on the altar, and they would all pray together, send rain, send rain, send rain, God, Hoshana, Hoshana, save us, send rain. And on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, rivers of living water of Maim Chaim will flow from within him. And Jesus takes all of the symbolism of this incredibly beautiful, powerful feast, and he puts all of that onto himself. And invites all of us to participate in it. That as we stand there and we cry out and we say, God, you are the only one that can bring us this living water, this rain, the thing that gives us life that only you, God, send. Jesus stands in that place and he says, if you're thirsty, come to me and streams of that living water will flow from within you. And now we go, oh, no wonder they wanted to take him out. He's standing in the middle of this beautiful, powerful, very God-directed feast and claiming to be God. And as we look back at these beautiful festivals and, and holidays back into the ancient Israelite world, they meant something for them, and they meant something for Jesus, and they mean something for us today. The ancient Israelites needed to remember that they had been wanderers in the desert. They needed to remember that they had been protected and covered by God. They needed to remember that God had given them freedom and set them free. Now, when we look at holidays today, and many of us as we live in a predominantly, um, at least culturally, it communicates a Western Christian society, when we come to holidays, we kind of have this experience, right? Like it's a war on Christmas. Jesus is the reason for the season. Why is Santa here? Why is the Easter Bunny here? And we approach our liturgical calendar and our holidays with a lot of um, need to protect or to defend or to remove ourselves entirely. We don't really quite know what to do with all of these things. Um, Is Christmas and Easter pagan? Uh, You know, they're not mentioned in Leviticus 23, but then there's other things that are also mentioned in Leviticus we don't really do, right? Those of you who like bacon-wrapped shellfish. So instead, I'd like to suggest that when we meet these beautiful holidays, and even the holidays that we celebrate today as Christians, that we instead approach it with a save-the-date approach. That God is giving us something exciting to be a part of, not something that needs to be defended, not something that needs to be protected from cultural this is, this is God inviting us to be with him because all of these festivals were about communion with God and they were about communion with one another in the community. To experience the fuel, full beauty of the biblical calendar, including Shabbat, it's a combination of both divine and human action that is required. So when we look ahead at calendars, when we look ahead at our dates, when we're starting to mark that calendar and say, how do I remember and keep what God has done in front of me? 
It's a save-the-date approach. It's with joy. It's with anticipation. It's with a desire to remember the past, to celebrate what God is doing in the present, and to look forward to the future, to that day of trumpets to come, to the day of judgment to come, to the day of forgiveness that is coming, that day when, again, we will dwell with God and Christ will dwell with us. So ultimately, my hope is that as we look back into Leviticus 23, and then we look forward and pull this beautiful festival and calendar throughout the entire text, that we know that this is, these are moments where we lean in and we say, I can trust God, and I can thank him, and I can rejoice in that. Whether Christmas or Easter, or whether you and your family build a tent, sukkah in the fall, and live there for eight days this next fall, Whatever it is, these festivals that God gave us are intended to help us to remember that we can trust him, that he has already set us free, that he has protected us as we were wanderers in the desert, and that he has dwelt with us and is still dwelling with us now and will dwell with us again. And those are reasons to rejoice. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you, Lord, so much for giving us a beautiful calendar, for giving us holy days that mark the events in our biblical history where you set us free, where you gave us life, where you gave us new hope, where you did things again and again to continue to show us that you are alive, that you are present, and that you are with us. And Jesus, I pray right now that the blessing and the miracle of this calendar would continue to live out in our lives in wonderful and beautiful ways, that we would not neglect the remembering of your work in bringing about the people Israel and that we would not neglect the remembering of your work and how you lived this calendar in your own life, Jesus, and how you are the first fruits of the resurrection, and that we get to participate in this beautiful story. Be with each one of us as we go tonight, and may the power of your presence and the power of your Holy Spirit go with us. In your name, amen.